Hey everyone, welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast, a production of neonewstoday.com. I'm your host, Dylan Grabowski. In this episode of the Smart Economy Podcast, I sat down and spoke with Oliver Lynch, the CEO at Bittrex Global. Bittrex Global provides spot markets for various cryptocurrencies to users across the world, with the exception of the US. The entity is completely separate from Bittrex, which was based out of the US and announced its filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in May of 2023. In this conversation, Oliver and I talk about the difference between Bittrex Global and Bittrex, Bittrex Global's forthcoming conversations with US regulators, various different regulatory guidelines across different jurisdictions in the world, outlook for the blockchain and crypto industry, and much more. Just a reminder, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any tokens, that nothing should be taken as financial advice, and that the host or guests may hold tokens discussed in any given episode. With that said, I really enjoyed chatting with Oliver, and I hope you enjoy the conversation too. Hey everyone, welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast. Today we're speaking with Oliver Lynch, the CEO of Bittrex Global. How are you doing today, Oliver? I'm very well indeed. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Yeah, very excited to have you on. This is going to be a really fun conversation to kind of talk about regulations from a global perspective, some of the unfortunate news that came out to kind of kick off the conversation. I myself was a Bittrex US user. So it's kind of sad to see the global entity have to cut off its hand in order to let the body survive. So I just wanted to start with that caveat and kind of give an RIP to the US branch. It is very sad. I just on a terminology point, this wasn't a branch and it wasn't like a, a US wing and a global wing. These were separate companies and Bitrix US was set up first back in you know 2013, 14. So it's been around for a long time. We set up Bitrix Global uh, much later in 2019, 20, uh, you know, once the global footprint had got big enough. So we've always been legally and operationally distinct, but we obviously share a heritage. And yeah, it's, it's really sad to see a situation where the US company felt it had no choice but to wind up its operations. Yeah, and we'll we'll definitely dig into that. Uh, one of the things I like to do with with the pod is to kind of just get a little bit of a background as to who you are and where you came from. My girlfriend and I just finished watching The Diplomat on Netflix, and <laughs> there's strong ties to the Royal Navy. You were in the Royal Navy Reserve, so I'm just wondering if you had any cool or interesting stories from the few years you spent when you were in the reserves. <laughs> uh, I was I wasn't a, a real Royal Navy officer. I was. Uh, you know, one up from a cadet, really. But um, I learned a lot of interesting things and a lot of the values that, that the military around the world share and the discipline and the kind of approach to the way the world works, which is personal responsibility. And I think that is something that is an underrated value. And it's probably something that we as a society need to think about. But I mean that across the board. And, and you know, I'm going to segue seamlessly into a crypto narrative right because because i've been media trained to within an inch of my life and <laughs> and that's what they tell you to do uh but but no there's a serious point which is that what crypto is at its heart about and what the potential and the exciting proposition of crypto is is empowering people to have access to financial services and products that they wouldn't otherwise have and enable them to you know realize potential that they would otherwise be be shut out from so 
you know, those values actually do permeate across the board and do have a resonance in crypto, ranging from things like do your own research, which is, you know, something you hear over and over again and is is really good advice, but also just at a fundamental level, like what's the point here? What's the value add here? Well, a very large component of that is what we like to call a democratization of finance and the access to products and services and and attributes that people just don't otherwise have access to in the traditional finance sphere. So uh, it's been a bit of a long-winded roundabout way of saying it, but I think that's a really important value. And I'm really grateful that I have the opportunity to see that in a, in a very kind of different context at an early stage of my life. Yeah, that's that's a great point that you bring up. And uh, I myself am a content creator, so I'm often putting out articles and, and podcast episodes and sometimes dealing with uh, folks who speculated into a cryptocurrency and a token. And it's always important to hammer down that we're all adults here. We all made our own decisions when we chose to invest or speculate on an asset. So I really appreciate that perspective. So before you were working with Bittrex Global, you had a previous 10-year career in the legal field, practicing financial regulatory law for about a decade. So what does kind of your transition out of the reserves, out of law school and into the field, what does that look like for the previous decade? Yeah. So I I had a very kind of traditional post-university life. I, I trained at a global law firm. I spent over a decade at that firm practicing financial regulatory law. Uh, in the traditional finance space. So based in London, did a bunch of work out in the US as well, obviously across Europe and the UK at that point was part of the EU. And I had a specialism in what we call FMI, financial market uh, infrastructure. So that's traditional exchanges, clearing houses, CCBs, data repositories, all that kind of infrastructure side of things. And then in the last, I don't know, five, six years or so, I got involved in some of the big projects out in the Middle East, um, including some of the mega projects based out of Saudi Arabia. And those are very fintech heavy. And the sort of fintech regulatory side of things became an increasingly important part of, of what I was doing. And so you take you know, traditional markets and regulation and fintech and mash them together, and you sort of get crypto-ish. And so here I am, and I joined uh, in 2021 as general counsel at Bitrex Global, uh, so still on the, on the legal side. And then I guess like last year, when my predecessor stepped down, I got the bump up, uh, wrong place at the wrong time, and uh, took on the additional role of CEO. Really looking forward to digging into what that transition looked like and how you went from the legal side to kind of like a management side perspective. But before that, I just want to hear what was your kind of genesis moment with blockchain or crypto? Was it Bitcoin during the white paper? Was it Ethereum during the the DAO hack? When did you first hear about crypto and when did it like click for you? Yeah, I wish I could say I was an early visionary that I got it as soon as the uh, Bitcoin white paper was released. But the reality is that's not the case. The reality is like many people in traditional finance, and many of whom still don't get it, I was quite slow to, to understand. But I think my journey, like especially like lawyers, and lawyers are kind of conservative, cautious, geeky, right? But what what we get is, or what, what at least I found I got quite more rapidly, is blockchain and the, the, the concept of DLT and the potential, which, by the way, we're only just discovering, but the potential for 
DLT to be disruptive. Right? And everything everything's disruptive these days, right? I stubbed my toe on my bed this morning and that was disruptive. And I've never heard anything not described as game-changing and disruptive. But I think DLT genuinely is game-changing and disruptive. And I think as a lawyer, my interest was really first peaked by that. And then as you begin to explore more and you understand actually Bitcoin is just one aspect of a much wider ecosystem and a much wider movement and a much bigger project, I was just like, well, I've got an opportunity here to to get involved in this and to be in maybe not at the ground floor, but but one floor up and help shape it. And especially, you know, thinking back 2020, 2021, the world looked very different from then. I mean, in, in crypto terms, that's about 100 years ago. And what was beginning to happen was this recognition of the importance of regulation. And so what's really interesting is Bittrex's journey started on this a long time before everyone else's. Because when Bittrex was first founded, and I say in 2013, 14, it had three main principles, three pillars, right? Which is security, innovation, and regulation. And you know, security and innovation, I've never heard anyone disagree with those, right? I've never heard anyone say, you know, what I really, really want is, a, is an unsecure and uninnovative exchange. <laughs> and some people are better at it than others, but everyone kind of sees it as, as a, a thing to, to aspire towards. But I definitely have heard people say, I don't want regulation. Like I want an unregulated exchange. And in fact, that was the dominant narrative back then. And in fact, our founders received actual death threats from people saying, how dare you push for regulation? This is anathema to everything we stand for. You know, when we take over, you'll be first against the world. Like really harrowing, harrowing stuff that by the time we'd cycle forward as far as 2019, 2021, 20, that stopped being the dominant narrative. Unfortunately, it was still too strong a narrative and, and maybe still is. But the world had kind of, well, we'd won, right? We'd won that argument. The world had woken up to the need if crypto is going to be part of the you know wider financial sector, the need to regulate it on similar kind of principles. And so I was sitting there thinking, well, heck, this this is like this could be my chance to do that. And I've been involved in some some other projects and some special economic zones and you know pushing the boundaries of what regulation can do to really kind of jumpstart economies. And I was like, well this is an opportunity to see what regulation could do to jumpstart the monetization of this entire kind of technology. And so so that's that's I guess what got me involved and what keeps me interested. We're still building that. I mean the job is is by no means done and the scandals of last year show that even if people were were talking the right kind of talk, they weren't uh, walking the right kind of walk and and there's there was still and probably still is a long way to go for many people because they, you know, it's all very well having your talking points on regulation. But you got into this kind of bizarre situation where regulatory statuses were just seen as you know trophies to put in the trophy cabinet and never looked at again, right? So and he got this kind of unedifying, oh, I've got 486 regulatory status. Oh, only 486, I've got 592. And it's just it was just kind of pathetic because any lawyer, but any any person that has any kind of experience in the financial industry tells you it's not about quantity, it's about quality. And, and, you know, you say to people, oh, you're regulated as if that's like a yes, no binary question. Well, no, you're, you say you're regulated, but are you really? Like, where are you regulated? How are you regulated? 
what kind of supervisory oversight do you have? And, and ultimately, how does that keep me, my markets, my customers safe? Right? Because that's what it's really all about. It's about the quality there. And those are, those are the questions that should be being asked. They are now being asked much more robustly, and, and, and that's right and proper. Because the fact is, doing things the right way, you know, I advise banks, I advise broker dealers, they will all tell you being regulated is really, really hard. And it's really annoying and you have to answer endless questions and there's constantly someone looking over your shoulder and checking your work and we're being audited and every year when you're being you have on site so it's 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 a real pain it's really difficult and so it should be right because without that it's not worth anything there's no point in saying oh i've got this this badge of honor from someone when that badge is basically meaningless it has to be difficult you have to put in the hard yards you have to be willing to turn down revenue opportunities just because they don't fit within acceptable parameters. You have to walk the walk. And so at Pitchers Global, we've been doing that. We've voluntarily subjected ourselves to regulatory regimes in two of the most robust jurisdictions in the world. And the world, the rest of the world is, I guess, now catching up. And um, I guess the next 6, 12, 18 months, especially in the lead up to Mika, which is the, the biggest development in regulation, I'm, I'm sure we'll have a chance to talk about that. People are beginning to realize regulation isn't just something that you say, tick a box, and everyone's okay with it. It's something that you've got to, got to live day in, day out. Yeah, my brother-in-law is a lawyer. And uh, in 2017, when I got into the space, he was also very much blockchain, not Bitcoin. So I can resonate with kind of where you were talking about a bit earlier. Curious, before we jump into Bittrex... Were blockchain networks just something in your previous career when you were working for various different financial entities other than Bittrex? Was blockchain just something that wasn't being looked at for international remittances or anything like that because there was no regulations or regulatory framework that made it possible for traditional financial institutions to integrate this tech? So I think that is one of the big blockers for, for the big institutions, right? Is that their rules, their risk committees simply won't let them engage. What we did see, and some of the scandals from last year is, there does seem to have been a bit of a bypass on that kind of thing. And questions were not asked as robustly as they should have been by those institutions who were just too price sensitive. I think what we're realizing now is, what they're realizing now is, you know, it's all about building relationships. And it's, it's all very well saying, and it, it's true that the story of the, of the bear market that we're currently in is that institutional interest is just as high, if not higher than ever, right? That, that, that is true and encouraging because, you know, those guys have decades of experience and risk models and trading models that they want to apply to crypto. That's a great thing, but they have to be able to do it in a way that leads to a like-to-like -like comparison with traditional finance, right? So the fact is every big bank now has a crypto desk, right? It, even the ones that, that say they don't, they do. I know they do. Every fund manager, every money manager, every family office knows that they have to offer exposure to crypto in some form or another. Otherwise, they're just going to be seen as left behind, stuck in the mud, whatever it is, right? But they can only do that in a rigorous and a robust way if they can say, well, look, you could either put your money in here, traditional stocks or bonds or whatever it is, or you could put your money here in whether it's directly into crypto or into some kind of crypto ETF, or but they can only make those comparisons if they are like for like. And so that, that piece 
this is when people say oh you know regulation will will kill the industry going back to those awful people sending death threats to to our founders it's like no no it's the regulation it's the ability for the sector to grow up and to take its place with the adults at the grown-ups table that's what actually leads to mass adoption at least on the institutional side but on the retail side too i mean look i wouldn't put my money in an unregulated bank why would i put my money on an unregulated exchange and if we're sitting there saying you know these are opportunities for ordinary people you, you know you and me but more importantly people that are unbanked or underbanked underprivileged badly served by the traditional finance those people don't have the access that they need to have but that doesn't mean that they don't deserve the same level of protections that they could get so if you want to encourage these people to start trading in crypto start getting involved in in this, in the sector we need to be able to guarantee them the same level of protections as they would get in traditional finance now that doesn't mean the rules have to be exactly the same and in fact the rules can't be exactly the same the technology is too new and evolving and has its nuances but the principles backing them up have to be just as robust so whether that's you know KYC and AML counter terrorist financing stuff you know trade monitoring market manipulation protections all those things that that we take for granted nowadays in the traditional finance sphere we need to start getting to a position where they're equally unarguable just because your assets now happen to be digital yeah and here in the states when it comes to deciding whether an asset is a security or not we're using an almost 100 years uh, howey test that was looking at orange groves and seeing how investors would be able to uh, claim any sort of future revenue off of promises that were made. So you're talking about financial institutions, banks having crypto desks, but there still needs to be a like for like. So do we need to create new laws, new regulations to replace something like a Howey test and a hundred year old outdated way to verify what type of assets or securities or not? Are we getting there? Do we need a completely revamp the whole system? Do we need to start from scratch? Is there a way to kind of meet in the middle? What's your perspective? Well, what we're seeing is a, a development of a two-speed world. We're seeing those jurisdictions that really embrace crypto and really want to grab a piece of that action saying, okay, well, we need to engage with crypto on crypto's terms, understand what digital assets are, how they work, what the risks are, how to identify and manage those risks, and therefore how to do all of this stuff safely. And the most successful jurisdictions so far in creating a safe regulatory environment for crypto to to thrive have adopted that approach. So Bishops Global is regulated in Liechtenstein and in Bermuda. They created brand new legislation, the TVCG in Liechtenstein, also known as the Blockchain Act, DABA, the Digital Assets Business Act in Bermuda, and others have followed suit since, right? So we mentioned Mika in the EU. Mika is actually based on the TVCG in Liechtenstein, uh, in some cases explicitly, but there are others too, right? The UK consultation paper suggests a new regulatory framework, VARA in Dubai, uh, Hong Kong, Japan, like that, the list goes on. And what we're seeing is that approach is just so much more successful at achieving the goal. And remember, the goal is ultimately protecting individuals, right? They're so much more successful at achieving that goal than this discussion that we have is like, well, let's try and view crypto through the prism of traditional categorization. 
and say, well, is it a security or a commodity or a derivative? And the answer is sort of, no, it's none of those things. It's a new, it's your own new thing of digital assets or crypto or whatever it is you want to call it. And you're never going to be able to fit that square peg in the round hole, especially when that round hole is, as you say, getting on for 100 years old. So I'm not, I'm not saying it's not possible to reconcile the two, and I'm sure there are good models out there for doing it. But the direct approach of regulating crypto as crypto, that's the more straightforward, but also the more all-encompassing. And what it means is there aren't gaps to fall through, which there are if you try and do it by a sort of piecemeal approach, or indeed, as we're seeing in the US. And it's not just the US that, that's lagging behind on this, but you know they're the world's biggest economy. But what you end up with this is this difficult regulation by enforcement kind of approach where no one knows what, what on earth is going on. You fumble about in this fog of, of uncertainty, not knowing whether you're doing the right thing or not until it's sort of someone decides it's too late. And I want to talk about this kind of shooting from the hip that the SEC is seemingly doing here in the States with regulation via enforcement. But something I am curious to hear about, you've been at Bittrex for a year and a half, maybe a little bit more now. Uh, when you started, you were there with for legal counsel, and now you're the CEO. I guess, broadly speaking, you started pre-FTX, pre-Luna collapse, and then you've been the CEO uh, helming the ship in these murky waters, if yeah. we're using the Royal Navy analogy. Over your time at Bittrex, Global. what have the different... Uh, Bittrex Global... Uh, what have your different considerations, what have your different focal points been? Um, and how has just like the general market and collapse of things like FTX really just demanded your attention focus elsewhere? Yeah, it's, it's been a journey, that's for sure. And uh, don't, don't worry about uh, getting hung up on the difference between Bitrix and Bitrix Global. Others seem to confuse too, uh, the SEC for one. But the fact is... My favorite analogy for all of this is it's a bit like the early days of the internet. Right? If you got on the internet in, in the mid to late 90s, it was an absolute cesspit. I mean, bright neon lights, bugs and viruses and scams everywhere you looked. But in amongst it all, also things that became Google and Amazon and Wikipedia. And, you know, and I've heard of those and they still exist and they're still doing great thing. That's not to say the internet's a phenomenal you know, place of sunshines and rainbows now, right? It's still, it's still got its problems, but it's nothing like it was then because there was this clearing out of the guff sitting underneath it, the scams and the bad actors, right? And I think crypto is going through, has gone through, is yet to go through. It's unclear exactly where we are in that process, but that's the process that is happening. And so the trick is, of course, making sure you're one of the ones that survives. And the way you do that is by being the good actors and, and adhering to the proper principles. And where it's different, right, where the analogy breaks down is, unlike the internet, when we're talking about crypto, we're talking about people's money, we're talking about finance. And so there's this additional layer on top of it, which is setting expectations based on the hard lessons that have been learned in traditional finance spheres. Right? So there's no point having gone through the 2008 financial crisis, learned those lessons, applied them, come up with structures that work in the traditional finance sphere, and then pretending that none of that exists when it comes to crypto. All of those principles, all of those lessons ought to apply in just the same way. And if we don't learn those lessons and we don't apply those uh, solutions in the same way, 
then we're dooming ourselves to suffer the same consequences that traditional finance did. So I think what, to come back to your question, is like what it's been like over the last year is safe in the knowledge that Bitrix Global will be one of those that succeeds because it has indelibly imprinted into its into its very lifeblood this concept of doing things the right way, this concept of you know, regulation is a, is a key pillar of our very foundation. You have to have confidence in that and faith in that, allow the clear out to happen beneath you, and hope that you know those principles are enough to carry you over the rough seas. And I think we've uh, probably abused that analogy far too much. <laughs> I'll avoid uh, any oceanic references from here on out. Uh, otherwise, you'll have to walk the plank, of course. <laughs> So Bittrex Global is completely separate from Bittrex US, but I did want to just touch a little bit on the news that came out last month that Bittrex US is filing Chapter 11 at the behest of the SEC regulating via enforcement in very murky waters. Well, not not at the behest of, right? So Bittrex US announced that it was getting out of the US before that happened. I mean, right. the, the fact is the... I look at their public statement when they announced that they were leaving the US and they were shutting down operations in the US, they just said the regulatory environment in which they were operating was so murky, so untransparent, so uncertain that they just couldn't continue to operate there. And if if, if you say as a company, we'll only do it if we can do it the right way, the fact is there are lots of people saying that. There are lots of good actors, more than, than we often get credit for, who want to do things the right way. And at the moment, they simply cannot in the US because there's this bait and switch, there's this fundamental uncertainty as to what the rules are, uh, let alone how you might comply with them. You know, so so that environment just gives rise to to this inability to do business in in a way we would want to. Yeah, I agree. I've been uh, working full time in the crypto space since 2017. I personally don't know anybody who's walking around at conferences, meetups, events, proudly proclaiming they're a scammer. Most people I know are generally trying to be good actors in this space and leverage the positive externalities and benefits that this technology can offer. So I'm curious then, uh, it sounds like there are two separate things that went on with Bittrex US. There was the entity announcing they're leaving the US. And then there's this separate Chapter 11 that is seemingly bought, brought on by SEC. I'm not sure the right way to word it. So if, if I worded it incorrectly, I'm sure you'll correct me. But I'm wondering, is Bittrex US planning to fight the SEC, go to court over this to, to bring out some sort of determination so that we can start having more of like a vision forward and understanding what the SEC is actually asking of folks? Absolutely. So they've said publicly, again, this is not me speaking for them. I've just, I've read what you've read. They've said publicly they are going to make their case and demonstrate that the SEC is, is wrong in its action. Similarly, Bitrix Global is continuing its action. It will, it will defend itself vigorously in the US courts. Okay. So can you just share a little bit about the differences between Bitrex Global and then the other kind of entities that are under the general Bitrex name? So it's basically, it's basically just two uh, entities. There's Bitrix US, which served US, and it's Bitrix Global, which served rest of the world. Bitrix Global, actually, so when we first set it up, we got ourselves regulated in Liechtenstein, uh, which was the lead jurisdiction back then. And then actually in 2020, we set up, it is a, our global footprint got bigger again. It stopped making sense to service the 
rest of the rest of the world out of Europe. So we set up Bitrix Global in Bermuda and got ourselves a, a second license for it being regulated uh, under the DABA by the BMA in Bermuda to service sort of non-EU clients. And we play around with those allocations and the jurisdictions, but both of those regimes under the CBTG and under DABA are very similar and are really robust. And, and the really important thing is, it's not just having nice words on a page, right? Anyone can kind of write legislation. You need something to back it up. And what that means is regulators who are interested but know what they're doing, right? And they have experience and, and experience in traditional finance too. So in Liechtenstein, that's obviously private wealth and banking. In Bermuda, that's insurance. Uh, and so what you get is, frankly, very smart, interested regulators working to a appropriate, tailored, fit-for-purpose regulatory framework. So yeah, their enforcement and their, their monitoring of the perimeter is and, and should be incredibly robust, but at least that, that makes sense. Having robust enforcement is not a bad thing. In fact, it's a good thing, but you need to be enforcing something that's fit for purpose in the first place. Yeah. And so I'm curious, are you seeing, um, I don't know if regulatory arbitrage is necessarily the right word, but there's been a key theme at the conferences I've been going to here in the States this year, East Denver, Consensus. You hear a lot of lawyers and VCs talking about this brain drain from the US. So are you seeing this regulatory arbitrage of crypto companies and entities opting to leave places that have traditionally serviced the financial sector and new companies? Are you, are you seeing this mass exodus now of folks going to the BMA, the, to Bermuda, to Liechtenstein? What does that kind of look like from your perspective? So it's really interesting. When you talk about regulatory arbitrage, as regulatory lawyers, that tends to be a dirty phrase, right? But right? What that generally means is going around the world, trying to find the jurisdiction that will impose the least burdensome obligations on you. So like a race to the bottom. I didn't mean it like that, though. <laughs> no, but that's what's really interesting, right? Because when we use it in crypto at the moment, we actually mean the total opposite, right? We, we're saying, okay, where can I go now that gets me the most bright, badge of honor that imposes the most rigorous standards. And so, you know, I was I was at a speech given by the Premier of Bermuda, and he was like, come to Bermuda, it's really difficult. Come to Bermuda, our standards are really, really burdensome. I, and this is the selling point, as well it should be, because then people say, oh, Bermuda, right? I know that one, that that's serious, right? That's difficult. And if you if the BMA say you're good, man, we we know you've you've been through the ringer, right? Now obviously no regulator. The regulators don't run the companies, right? The companies are ultimately responsible for what they do. But having someone with with that reputation, so if, if that's what regulatory arbitrage means in crypto, then that's that's a great thing, and we should encourage that because that's not a race to the bottom. That's a race to the top of flight to quality or whatever it is you want to call it. So so that that I think is a really good development in terms of the the brain drain or the escape from the US. I think you are seeing elements of that. Now, the difficulty is, you know, I always used to say as CEO of Bitrix Global, the joy is I never need to worry about the US, right? Because we don't have any US customers. We don't offer our services into the US. You know, so I, I don't need to worry about it. It turns out some people disagreed and they think I did need to worry about it, but we'll have that discussion with them. But I think it's tempting as a global company, as a non-US company to think, right, well, we'll just bring down the shutters, block off the US. Uh, and pretend that it doesn't exist. I don't think that works, right? Because the fact is, 
the US is still the world's largest economy. It still has, you know, the best universities in the world. It has the best innovation entrepreneurs in the world. It has all of the infrastructure for traditional markets. Simply pretending that it doesn't exist doesn't work because what the US does resonates around the world. And so I think that there is a strong push and a realization that there needs to be a strong push from within crypto that says, if we're going to have this grown-up, adult, respectable industry for crypto that, that we know can be built and should be built, the US needs to be a part of that conversation. And in a way, like you can't blame the SEC. Right? They, they, they've only got the tools that they're given. But if, if all you've been given is a hammer, the whole world looks like a nail. Right? That's just how it works. And so you know, who, who can solve this? Well, the answer ultimately is Congress needs to look at what's being happening around the world and these developments that we were talking about. You know, Bermuda's only a couple of hours away. Like it didn't need to look very far. And if it's worried about scale, we'll look at what the EU's doing with Mika, right? That's a comparable jurisdiction in terms of size and complexity. These things can be done. I understand, of course, the politics in the US is, is very different and there's lots of nuance and complexity there. But I think it, it would be naive of the industry to say, oh, well, it's great. Everyone's leaving the US, so we'll be able to snap up all that talent and uh, everything will be fine. I think that's naive because I don't know that we will ever reach the full potential of crypto if this major component in the world is is missing. Mm-hmm. I definitely want to dig into the different jurisdictions that are providing more regulatory, clear regulatory framework. But before we do that, I am curious to hear what are the types of services that Bittrex Global offers its users? And then having located in Liechtenstein and in Bermuda, because of the framework that's been provided, are there new types of services that Bittrex Global has been able to offer because there is a more confident feeling that you're able to operate in a regulatory compliant manner? So, so the answer to that question is, is yes, right? And in particular, the framework in Bermuda allows for a, a wide range of tokenization of real world assets to take place. Um, and we're really just beginning to scratch the surface on what can be done there. Now, Bittrex Global is and always has been a spot exchange. And so to some extent, we've always taken the view that the core offering needs to be simple and straightforward. And it's when you get these complexities and the, the lack of transparency around those complexities that you encounter some of the difficulties like we saw with, of course, FTX. So we don't have an affiliated hedge fund and we don't have some of the bells and whistles that certainly look very shiny, but um, maybe of, of limited value. And that's not to say that there isn't a perfectly legitimate way of doing all of those things. There is, and there's value in doing all of them, but they have to be done in the right way. And that just takes time. And I think springing, stuff springing up and suddenly exploding without the framework behind it, without the resources behind it, is where you get some of the problems. So DABA in, in Bermuda in particular does allow for tokenization of, of real-world assets and does allow for tokens and uh, leverage tokens and all these kind of additional product lines. At the moment, we're being very cautious. We're being very careful because that's what our customers want at this stage, right? The, the direct transparency, in particular, knowing that the entity you're contracting with is the entity that's regulated. And this was one of the, the many kind of bait-and-switch problems that seem to have existed in the scandals from last year 
is it's all very well saying, oh, you know, Bishop's Global Burrito is regulated under DABA by the BMA. And then when you look in your terms of service, you're actually regulated by, oh, sorry, you're being serviced by some unregulated, unknown entity out of God knows where. We've never done that. We've never sought to do that. Uh, if you're being serviced by Bishop's Global Bermuda, it will be Bitchett's Global Bermuda Limited and go look on the register. That's the entity that's serving you. So that level of transparency and straightforwardness is something I think in particular following the scandals of last year, people are really, are really valuing. But again, that doesn't mean that innovation is stifled in, in any way. Uh, and we're working hard and closely with our customers to really understand what it is that they're looking for, what the features are that they're after. And a, a one-stop shop that does everything with all the bells and whistles and accoutrement and all that other stuff actually may not be the most safe and secure and may not be really what they're looking for. So we've been kind of alluding to FTX and the scandals of 2022. Something that I've found interesting is uh, when we're in the blockchain space and crypto space, everybody's always talking about decentralization. But last year, we saw two major different affronts. We saw Terra Luna, a decentralized protocol collapsing. And then we saw FTX, a centralized entity collapsing. So I'm curious from the larger scale institutions you guys are having conversations with, or even just kind of like your larger clients, did this kind of like double-sided attack from both the decentralized entity and the centralized entity kind of spook them or scare them from jumping further into the space? Well, I think what it did is show that the issue is not one of centralization or decentralization. And actually, the space works best when those two things work in conjunction with each other. right? And, and it's easy for me. I could sit here, CEO of a centralized exchange, and say, oh, you, you should always only use centralized exchanges. Um, and in fact, you should only use Bishop's Global. And you know, if any users are going to be, if any of your listeners are going to be persuaded by that to become one of my users, then then great. Pretend I've said that. But actually, we take a much longer term view of of the sector uh, at Bishop's Global, and there are definite lessons to be learned from the DeFi guys and the CeFi guys working together and, and creating a product that's actually safe and fit for purpose for its users. And so the lesson, I think the, the clever lessons that people are learning are it doesn't really matter to the same extent exactly how you're structured. What matters is how you operate. Regulation is a, is an, a very important part of that. And it, it is, by its very nature, much more difficult to regulate DeFi projects because there's nothing really to, to latch onto in the same way as there is with centralized projects. But that doesn't mean it can't be done. And again, People have said, oh, throw your hands up in the air and say there's nothing to be done here. Well, you know, you're just not trying hard enough. Be a bit cleverer and a bit more imaginative or pay your lawyers more and, and you'll get there. But I think what people are really beginning to see is however things are structured, they have to be structured in a way that is transparent, that is open, that is verifiable, and that is regulated. Now, you can do that in, in any number of ways, but the rules need to be fit for purpose. And institutions do have a role in really digging in because the fact is they are the best at understanding and modeling risk. You know, if you're if you're a large bank and you've got 50 years of experience of complex risk modeling under your belt in the traditional finance sphere, you're just going to be better at that than like some guy trying his hand at things. And so it's perfectly legitimate and right and expected that we do rely to some extent on the institutions 
to hold our feet to the fire and to ask those questions and to dig in. Those questions can be asked of me, but they can be asked of another centralized exchange, or they can be asked of a decentralized project, and they should be. And so we, we all need to be more rigorous, more robust, and those questions are now being asked, right? And, and that's great, and we love those because we've got answers to them. But it's really on the sector as a whole. Those people that want to see mass adoption or want to see you know, the future of crypto being this kind of grown-up industry to be just as rigorous and robust with their preferred projects as with, uh, as with everyone else. So I'm curious to, to dig a little bit more into Mika and, and maybe even these uh, new regulations that uh, Hong Kong is putting forth. But I just want to hear from your perspective, and, and maybe this is kind of an unfair question to ask, but do you think that the SEC operating via the way that they've been doing, uh, which is just basically serving crypto entities with these Wells notices and then having them go through the ringer, is this kind of an act out of fear? Or do you think that this is really like they are trying to provide a path forward and they think they're doing good? Well, look, I, I'm not going to speculate on anyone's motivations. I generally go through life assuming people are acting in good faith. There does seem to be a lot of confusion as to not just what they're doing, but how they're doing it. Now, what, what's motivating that, what's behind that, People can have their own their own speculation, and I read the same press that you do. So, yeah, I, I, but I don't ultimately don't think it matters, right? Because what really matters is outcomes, and I guess two things are true. The first is it's all very well saying come in and register or whatever it is, but if there's no path to doing that, there's no way to comply. That is a meaningless statement. And the second thing is, if as a result of all of this, your citizens are less safe. Your citizens don't have the protections that citizens in other jurisdictions have, then you failed, right? Then, then you, whether it's you, the SEC, or you, Congress, or just you as a jurisdiction, are not achieving the best outcomes for your citizens and for your markets and for your industry as a whole. And that should worry anyone who has an obligation to ensure that the system is the best it can be. Mm-hmm. A company located here in the U.S. called Prometheum last week announced that they were able to obtain a special purpose broker-dealer license from the SEC, which basically allows them to custody assets as well as perform as an exchange. Um, not sure if you've heard about this or, or dug into it yet. Just wanted to hear your thoughts on if you think this is a positive step forward for at least this jurisdiction. Yeah, I, I haven't really dug into it, and I'd need to okay. get a bit more into the details on on what they're doing. But if this is a step towards a better regulatory clarity, then that's a great thing. And look, if it's not this, then we can just keep our fingers crossed that it'll be something else down the road, giving the US that certainty that it needs, short of a, a kind of about turn or a, a real change in approach from the regulators. All my US colleagues tell me it's going to require some kind of legislative solution. My point is, I guess, there are lots of ways of skinning this cat, but one of them is not sit around and say, oh, well, it's probably just skinned already. Gotcha. So Bittrex Global has, I guess, headquartered or officed in Liechtenstein and Bermuda. The EU recently passed MICA, which will take effect next year. What are your kind of insights, thoughts, do you think that this is going to be positive for the European Union? I'd just love to hear your perspective on what Michael will offer 
entities that are trying to build in a regulatory compliant manner? Yeah, so we were one of the very few exchanges that was in favor of Mika from the beginning. And that's not surprising, I guess, because it is built on the same model that, that we've been operating under for three, four years now. As I say, Mika is, is based in some cases explicitly on the Liechtenstein Blockchain Act. So the token container model, uh, the regulation of service providers, that is a model that was built up in Liechtenstein, was developed there, and has been adopted. And it's a very sensible approach. Is Mika perfect? No. I've never encountered a regulatory framework for anything that is perfect, right? And that's kind of the point. There's always incremental advances, things you can change, ways you can tinker. People are already talking about what's going to go into Mika 2, what's missing. I think, again, you've got to look at the motivations of people taking pot shots. So you would have read the same articles I have that said, hey, Mika doesn't cover, insert whatever it is you want here, so the whole thing is useless and rubbish and, and we should throw the whole thing away. And I'm just like, no, that's not how it works, right? The perfect is the enemy of the good, and there is an awful lot in Mika that is good. Can we make it better? Yes. And actually, as an industry, we've been very slow to engage with policymakers and regulators to, to make it better, and we need to do a better job of that. Back when I was in private practice, I'd be advising banks and market infrastructure on working with the government, whether that's formally through consultation papers or just informally, all the time. And that was seen as a perfectly normal way to do things. Then you get into crypto, and at least historically, there's been a, well, I'll just sit on the sidelines and, and pout or not say anything and hope that they won't notice me. And actually, all you end up with there is worse regulations. And so I think as, as regulators, policymakers around the world wake up to this and start implementing robust regimes, which is a good thing, the impetus needs to be on people like me to say, okay, well, how can I help? How can I roll my sleeves up and get involved? Otherwise, you just end up with worse rules, right? It's not like you're going to end up with no rules. You're just the very people that could help shape the best regulation, the best protections, the most transparent, the most clear way of doing things are refusing to engage. And ultimately, that doesn't really help anyone. So Mika, Mika is, a, is a overall, I think, a really good thing. It will help the EU because I say that the thing that people need most is certainty, right? And, and the number of people I've heard say in the US context, I'd rather have certain bad rules than uncertainty. I think Mika is certain and good. Is it certain and perfect? No. But is it certain and good? Yes, I think so. So we're recording this conversation on June 1st. Today in Hong Kong is when these rules that allowed the regulators to approve exchanges from what I've been able to understand have gone into effect. So how has Hong Kong's new regulatory approach impacted the perspective that Bittrex Global has for that region? Well, Hong Kong is just a really interesting example. So you can either see it as just another player in this global race. I mentioned the UK earlier, Vara, Japan is in, in the mix as well. But I think the big overlay, the, the additional factor there is, of course, the intrigue of the political interaction with mainland China and, and how that bears out. So I think a lot of people are keeping even closer an eye on Hong Kong than they might otherwise do. But let's not forget, Hong Kong is one of the major global financial centers, as indeed is Singapore. And Singapore is another one that's often thrown in in that mix of, you know, what are they doing in, in the digital asset space? 
So, you know, still a long way to go, still a lot of uncertainty. And I think that's inevitable with Hong Kong as we begin to understand exactly what the relationship there is and how Beijing sees it and all that kind of stuff. But people are certainly, uh, when Hong Kong speaks, people listen, that's for sure. Gotcha. And the UK is not part of the EU, so MICA is not encompassing that. Mm -hmm. However, I hear on this side of the pond, I hear conflicting sort of things going on in the UK. I hear there's kind of draconian laws that are anti-crypto blockchain, but then there's also leadership in the government positions stating that they want the UK to become a global hub for the blockchain and crypto space. So what's it like over there? What's the regulatory outlook? Are you positive? Are you negative? Are you just kind of holding your breath? So there are some mixed signals, and that that is unfortunate. The biggest development was in, in February of this year, the Treasury released a consultation paper for an all-encompassing crypto regulation, not unlike Mika, and actually in many ways along similar principles. And this was part of the government's stated intention to create an all-encompassing regulatory framework for crypto. Now, that consultation paper was, was released at quite an early stage. It was a lot more open texture than quite a lot of consultation papers that are published by the Treasury are. And we speculate that the reason for that is they realize that there are companies around the world who realize they need to go and get regulated, realize they need to be regulated in this kind of time zone. And the UK was saying, well, hang on, don't execute on whatever your preferred European jurisdiction of choice is. We're going to do something just as good, if not better. And the, the, the release of the consultation paper was is being seen by the industry as a signal to sort of stand by and see. Yeah, that might work. People do want to be in the UK, and it has a lot of attractive features, right? So just as a financial center, it's very attractive. There's a lot of infrastructure, a lot of big players here. The legal system is much more attractive than the European one, which is often very frustrating and difficult to navigate being a civil law system, whereas the UK's common law system is, is generally seen as much more finance-friendly. So there are a lot of features of the UK that, that I think would give people if you're based in Australia or Japan or something and you're looking to set up in this time zone, I think instinctively you would want to see if it's possible to set up in the UK. And I think what the industry is seeing, hoping, trying to read between the lines is that the UK is saying, okay, yeah, we will provide that certainty and that framework for you. Now, there's a bunch of other stuff going on in the UK, things like the digital pound or Bitcoin, which, by the way, is a great pun <laughs> worth doing just for that pun. But you know, there's a there's a bunch of initiatives that that look a bit distracting, and there's some tax stuff going on, and you know there are some mixed signals going on out there. Now that consultation paper, the responses uh, closed last month, and we're, we're now the next stage is to see what comes out of it. Unlikely to be before the summer, uh, or I guess it's it's the first of June now, so maybe that's officially summer anyway. But we we kind of wait and see what comes out of that process. Uh, and then we'll have a much better idea of whether the UK really is taking it seriously in the way that it says it is. Awesome. Uh, kind of wrapping up, I want to zoom out a little bit and ask you to play uh, both the hero and the devil's advocate. What do you think is the dystopian and the utopian future that these cryptocurrencies and blockchain networks can offer the world? <laughs> Well, I, I long since stopped making predictions about crypto industry because I would get them em embarrassingly wrong uh, and they, 
the problem is you're recording this, right? So someone can come back and play this. <laughs> but I, I think we need to be masters of our own destiny to some extent. Hey, look, I can loop this all the way back to the Royal Navy stuff at the very beginning. Look at that, right? Which is, it's about taking personal responsibility. I think those of us in the industry can see there's an awful lot of good that can be done with crypto, but it is still true that there are some bad actors out there. There are some coins out there where you look at them and you're just like, like, why? Why, why do you exist? Now, they're few and far between, or fewer and further between, that's for sure. But that doesn't mean that, that they're not there and that we as an industry don't have an obligation if we want to see the future of crypto being that grown-up, responsible, respectable part of the financial sector then we need to we need to work hard to get there and you know five ten years from now whatever it is i think the future of crypto is that it's not really crypto at all it's just another asset class in the wider financial sector so you have derivatives and you have equities and you have people specializing in these things and there'll be differentiating rules and there might be separate conferences for them but but they're all part of finance and I think crypto needs to take its place at that table and just be yet another category in the wider scheme of things. So I think that's the that's the future that we should be aiming towards. And I think that those who adhere to this sort of old-fashioned view of crypto, which is that it's only used for illegitimate purposes, we should take that risk seriously because those people can really undermine confidence and can thwart projects. And the, the problem with trust is it takes years to build up and seconds to destroy. And we need to be vigilant and we need to work hard to build up that trust and to hunt out and shut down those that would seek to destroy it. Love it. What are the next steps for Bittrex Global? What are you guys doubling down and focusing on? Well, as ever, and it's a sweet answer, we're focusing on our customers. So we as a company have always avoided doing the sort of shiny, headline grabby, but empty business model kind of thing. We've always just focused on what is it, what are the products, what are the services, what are the features that our customers want. And you know, through this bear market, we're we're working really hard and enjoying engaging with them to produce really what we hope is the most secure regulated crypto exchange in the world. I've really enjoyed this past hour chatting with you about global regulations and just your perspective. It's very rare that I get to chat with a lawyer about various different regulatory entities. So yeah, they don't let us out much. So <laughs> I hope I was able to keep up with you. Uh, this was a great conversation. So if people want to keep up to date with what you're doing or what Bitrex Global is doing, what's the best way they can do that? You can follow me on LinkedIn or on Twitter. And I'm at Oliver Lynch on both those things. Uh, you can follow Bitrex Global on its social media as well, or you can visit global.bitrex.com. Oliver, thank you so much for spending an hour with us. This was an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. It's been a great joy to be on the podcast. Cheers. Well, what did you think of that conversation? I thought it was really interesting to hear more about the jurisdictions that Bittrex Global opted to be regulated by and why they went with the most forward-thinking, but also extremely thorough regulators. It was also really interesting to hear that regulatory arbitrage has a positive meaning in the crypto space for entities that are seeking proper regulation. But for regulatory lawyers, that means very negative things in almost every other industry. Overall, 
it sounded like the more jurisdictions that are offering regulatory clarity can help provide the crypto and blockchain industry with a path forward to build in a compliant manner, which is something that companies in the US have been clamoring for for many years now. I'll definitely be keeping my ears to the ground and watching where these new crypto companies opt to locate. On that note, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Smart Economy podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support the show, please keep NEO News Today in mind when voting for your NEO Council representative as part of NEO's governance process. We appreciate you and look forward to catching you next time.